0: And I thought, you know, if I was on the outside, I would really want to know what was actually happening on the inside that day. And I felt so strongly that people needed to know. So, and it was cathartic for me as well to just write my story down because it was just so shocking.
1: When we ignore our collective losses and tragedies, we only compound the pain they generate. And when we feel like our pain is ignored or we can't share it, remembering can become, well, complicated. And how we lead can potentially become toxic. Now, for those of you listening, no matter your age, I know you have moments in your life that are embedded in your nervous system. The time, the place, who you were with, when something significant happened in your world that shook you to your core. Now, because of the world we live in, we're bombarded by so much information, and it can be easy to default to the belief that remembering and acknowledging our collective losses will only make things worse. Or you may default to the belief that nothing has changed and let cynicism or indifference lead and harden your heart to protect from feelings of despair and hopelessness around loss of life, dignity, and safety. Now, when I think back to significant collective losses I've experienced, whether I was alone or who I was with and how we connected impacted how I metabolized the shock, grief, or horror of what my brain grappled to make sense of in the moment. And the sense of community or lack thereof we feel during those moments also impacts our remembering. Y'all, when we remember well together, We comfort each other. And we also come together to ask the hard questions that support change that sustains. I'm Rebecca Chang, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. In elementary school, I recall how my teachers acted really weird at school one day and told us to go home and talk to our parents and didn't say much more. It was really weird. Now, since I was a latchkey kid, I didn't have anyone to go home to and process whatever they were talking about. So my TV was there to inform me that there was an assassination attempt against the former president, Ronald Reagan, which was so much for me to handle on my own as a fifth grader. And in middle school, I remember sitting in class and the teachers informing us the space shuttle had a fatal explosion after taking off. So instead of replaying on TV what happened, we talked about our losses instead of watching the historic flight that we had planned to watch. And on 9-11, I was settling into my new home in San Diego. I had just received my shipment from my previous home in Switzerland, and my new roommate was stranded on the East Coast because all flights had been grounded. I spent the day emailing and calling my friends in D.C. and New York, both places I've lived and worked, to see if they were safe and to make sense of what we saw unfolding before our eyes now, more, more recently, on January 6, 2021, I had an unusually light day of client calls. Like so many people, I was a bit on edge, probably more than a bit on edge, <laughs> about the transition of power from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And we would soon know that was for good reason, as we all watched the insurrection on the United States Capitol. Now, thankfully that day, my husband, who teaches APUS history and is my go-to to talk about all things history and politics, was still on winter break and home that week. He's also my number one support. We connected between my work calls and grounded ourselves together as we were seeing and hearing so much unfold before our eyes. Like many, I didn't sleep that night and I was shook to the core. I finally fell asleep when the members of Congress verified the election. When I woke up that day exhausted (laughs) and concerned, the beginnings of what would become a massive spin to deny and reauthor what happened on January 6th was moving forward in full steam. It was jaw jumping, brain exploding, but also in many ways, more of the same of what we've been experiencing the last several years. So this solidified my commitment to do my small part to remember the January 6th insurrection by sharing lived experiences to counter the many attempts to reauthor what really happened on that day. Now, a lot has happened in the last two years since we watched in real time the insurrection in Washington, DC. And a lot still feels stuck in the same loops of polarities and divides in our culture in the spaces we live and work. Now, over these last couple of years, the January 6th committee has gathered an incredible amount of data, eyewitness accounts, transcripts of many conversations that led to the insurrection. Formal criminal recommendations have been sent to the Department of Justice as the committee prepares to close down. And I I have some incredible stories coming your way from people who experienced the insurrection firsthand and have been a crucial part in making sure we remember what really happened that day. And for this year's anniversary, I'm replaying my conversation with Julie Tagan, Chief of Staff to Congressman Jamie Raskin, who also served on that January 6th committee that worked so hard over the last couple of years to tediously collect Information, testimony, and other important data. Now, some of you may have already listened to this episode, and if so, I want to encourage you to listen again and remember. And for those of you who are new to this story, thank you for remembering with me. The burdens we carry can impact our capacity to feel the discomfort of remembering, especially with others. And for those of us with the privilege to tap out, It can feel easy to default to wanting to play it safe and quote, not get political for fear of conflict or alienating some people. And I get it. It's been rough to have conversations about just about anything these days. Taking a stand on just about anything also seems to create a divide. Now, my clients have taught me over the years that the most difficult pain to recover from is not necessarily actual betrayal of trust or abuse, as painful as that was for them. But what was so exquisitely painful and difficult to heal from is the silence of those who knew a wrong had happened and stayed silent and did not speak up and intervene. So when you do the work to release the burdens of shame, you have the capacity to hold more courage and wade through the conflict of not staying silent or falling into the false sense of appeasing through neutrality. We all need to remember what really happened on January 6th so we make sure it never happens again, and I'm honored to replay this eyewitness account of January 6th, 2021. My guest is an incredible example of long game resilience while riding the ups and downs of staying engaged in the political process while taking care of her well-being. Julie Tagan is defined by so much more than her experience on January 6th. While her story is powerful and needs to be shared on repeat, she's also the chief of staff to Congressman Jamie Raskin. She is a veteran leader in DC politics and campaigns and is committed to leaving a legacy to the next generation of leaders who will continue the work she has cared so much about for two and a half decades. Now listen for Julie's firsthand account of what she experienced on January 6th and what she learned about herself. Notice Julie's response to how she has kept cynicism at bay while working in politics for over 25 years. And pay attention to Julie's reflection on responding to discrimination while owning all parts of her identity. Thank you so much for listening to this replay of my powerful conversation with Julie Tagan and welcome her back to the Unburdened Leader podcast.
0: Julie, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Rebecca.
1: Well, Julie, in typical Unburdened Leader fashion, we drop in right away. <laughs> I, I want to go back to January 6, 2021. You are the Chief of Staff for Congressman Jamie Raskin, who holds the seat for Maryland's 8th Congressional District. Two days after the January 6th insurrection on the United States Capitol, you wrote this detailed account. Of your experience of events that day. And, and I want you to read an excerpt from it, but let me let me tee it up because you talked about in this excerpt how it was just a normal day. You and your boss drove together and you could see the Trump folks, the QAnon, the Confederate flags that were milling around outside. Your boss was going to have a big speech that day because of his background in, as a legal scholar. He also had experienced a horrible family tragedy just days before. So he got this incredible access to this room that Majority Leader Steny Hoyer had given you all so he could work on his speech, but also have some space to convalesce and prepare before. And this office from Majority Leader Hoyer is like just steps from the House floor. You had a couple of of his family members, Tabitha and Hank were with you noticing things were getting unruly outside and at some point you could see them taking people away in handcuffs there was smoke probably tear gas and the crowd was growing and so I'd love for you to read kind of the excerpt that we talked about so can
0: you share in your own words read the rest of what you wrote? Sure happy to do it suddenly we started getting alerts on the computer and our phones Calls and texts from team members came pouring in. The Capitol had been breached. The house floor was quickly adjourned. The alerts told us to turn off all sounds in our offices and to take cover. Tabitha and Hank crammed under Steny Hoyer's desk and I took the chairs in the room and barricaded the door. I was looking out of the side window at the chaos. I began to panic inside at the thought of the Raskin kids being traumatized again, and what was happening to them after everything they'd been through. Outwardly, I was calm. I told Tabitha and Hank that we would be okay. Inwardly, I wanted to crawl up in a ball and hide. I was scared. Perhaps it was the adrenaline or the reality of the moment, but I had an epiphany, for lack of a better word. I was trapped in a room with a giant photograph of John Lewis on the wall and a bust of Abraham Lincoln on the fireplace mantel. I said to myself, and perhaps out loud, these people are terrorists. They cannot win. Some who know me might say at that moment, I got my filly on. <laughs> I, gathered, <laughs> I gathered anything in the room that I could use as a weapon and put them by the door a fireplace stoker bus, a bronze award of a buck with large and pointy horns. By then, the terrorists had men made their way into the Capitol. We could hear their heavy footsteps outside our door as they tried to breach the house floor. We could hear them chanting, USA, USA, and we want Trump, and stop the steal, We could hear them trying to ram the door of the house chamber just a few feet away. There were bangs all over the place. Someone jangled our door handle. I picked up the heaviest item I could find, not sure why, the bronze buck bust, and stood in front of the door, waiting for them to arrive. I started receiving texts from Jamie, who had been evacuated from the house floor, asking if we were okay. I lied and told him we were fine because I didn't want to worry him too. I also started getting calls from Pelosi's floor staff who were trying to locate and evacuate us. Texts started arriving from friends all around the country asking if I was okay. I only told a few close buddies how terrified I was. I talked to my wife, Dee, very quickly and told her that we were safe and fine. I asked Hank if it was convincing enough. After what felt like 30 minutes, the chance began to die down. I could hear police in the hallway. They knocked on the door and told us they were there to help. Tabitha and Hank got out from under the desk. We all looked at each other and said nothing. There was a delay to get us out as a result of being locked in, and I hadn't remembered I had locked the three inside locks too. Five Capitol Police officers opened the door, It was clear they were amped up. They said, let's roll and whisked us through the tight stairwells of the Capitol. And we finally made it to the secure location where we were joyously joined by a super relieved and grateful Jamie. In the secure location, everyone was exhausted and there was little food or water. Little by little, small food items were handed out, goldfish crackers, berry gummies, Skittles, After four hours, pizzas and drink arrived. I pretty much survived that night on candy and Diet Coke. At around 9.15, I was able to get Tabitha and Hank a ride home to Maryland. I stayed with Jamie until the end, until 4 a.m. It was an honor and privilege to be in the Capitol when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were declared winners and the next president and vice president of the United States. I arrived back home a little past four in the morning. I'm still processing all of this, but I could never imagine this happening to the United States Congress.
1: What does it feel like to read these words right now?
0: Well, it's, it's often painful because Mm. reliving it is really, is really painful. I don't relive it that much. I've, I've relived it for my friends and my family. I wrote that because I was just being, that day I was being bombarded by people wanting to know what was going on. And I posted on Facebook that afternoon that I was safe, but I had a story for the ages. And people were just like, tell your story, tell your story. And I thought, you know, If I was on the outside, I would really want to know what was actually happening on the inside that day. And I felt so strongly that people needed to know. So, And it was cathartic for me as well to just write my story down because it was just so shocking.
1: What stands out to you as you reflect on that day right now?
0: I think back to how I really was terrified. I really, really thought that people were going to come in to the room where we were. And uh, that was really just terrifying to me. And uh, I think that's what stands out is sometimes it's relief. Sometimes it's because it could have been so much worse. And I think a little bit of relief maybe that we're all okay now
1: as you revisit that story you could even see that in in you reading these words but even with everything going on you know it, it's it's sometimes hard to step back into that relief there was something that you wrote earlier in that excerpt about how your boss had texted you and asked if you were okay and you said you you lied to him and said we're fine but you were steps from the house floor which was breached and I really, as a former Senate staffer, I really identified with that that protective nature, that like, we're good, we're good. There's almost this weird reflexive response that we're the buffer from all the hard stuff and we wanna just protect. And so I just really resonated with that and, and identified with that. But I was also struck that these were extenuating circumstances. So I wonder if you could share what was fueling your desire to not worry your boss at that moment.
0: Well, the family had just been through a tragedy like no other. The Congressman's son, Tommy, took his life on the 31st of December. And then on January 5th was his funeral and they buried him. And January 6th was the very next day. And it was just, I I think back to it and I think it was so real. And I think what happened to me is I was very scared and then I turned really angry. Hmm. That, that was the switch for me. Like I went from being really scared that something was going to happen to me to being really angry that they were doing this to us. Because one thing, Rebecca, I really felt strongly about and, we were, Hank and Tabitha and I, along with the congressman, we were in that room. Uh, we got to the room around noon and we could s- start seeing some of it, but it never once entered my mind that we weren't going to be protected. I've worked on the Hill For a long time, Hank and Tabitha were really worried. They were looking out the window early in the process, and I kept saying to them, "It's fine." And I, I really believed it. It's fine. There's no way we're in the safest place possible. I actually Mm -hmm. was kind of more worried about my friends and my staff that were in other buildings because I thought, I bet you they could get into the other buildings, but there's no possible way these people can get into the U.S. Capitol. And then over time, it it just broke down and realized they're in.
1: But it all happened so quickly. and, And I just want to speak to that fear turning to anger. I really value that. And a lot of times, especially for women, we judge our anger and anger is so powerful and mighty and it's deeply protective. A lot of times people say it's a secondary emotion, but this is a classic example of really almost it was rage. It's so primary. It's so protective. It was almost this righteous anger. Like I am not going to succumb to being afraid and to being bullied. No. And you stood your ground and that shift is, is really powerful. And I think a lot of people can relate to that.
0: Yeah. I I also had this moment and I, I never thought I would really have this, but I did have a moment, you know, you never know what you're going to do in a (laughs) situation situation like this. And really I, my first instinct was to roll up into a ball and, and, and hide away. But I did have a moment where I did say, I thought, honestly, I thought I was going to die that day. And I thought, (sighs) I don't want to die scared. Like Mm. if I have to go, I just, and I had no idea that was inside of me. I just don't want to die scared. I want to go out fighting. And that's when I, and I I use some choice words. I say I got my filly on, but I really use some choice words. And Hank wrote his story as well, and uh, he actually used the words that I used, <laughs> but I was—I you know, just was really angry. You know, you you bring me back to a memory I
1: had in D.C. when I lived right on Cap- Capitol Hill, right off of Constitution on the Senate side, and I was mugged. And what happened is the muggers—they passed me and grabbed my friend Allison, and I watched one of them buckle down. And I remember. There was this moment. There's two guys were behind me, and I'm I'm only five two, and these guys just were giant. And to everyone's giant to me, (laughs) but (laughs) and and there was this moment, just like you said, where I saw. Well, I'm not gonna watch her get hurt. So if I'm gonna go. I'm going to go try to help her. And I just jumped on the guy that was taken. And then I got pulled back and got all scrappy. And they just wanted our backpacks. Thank God that was all they wanted. But that moment where it's like when you're faced with that moment where your life feels threatened, it's just like, how do I want to end? I don't want to end taking it. I want to fight. It's I just think it was something I learned about. It taught me a lot. It was a horrible way to learn about that strength. What are the echoes of that rage that you tapped into? How are they showing up in your life?
0: In some ways, i was when I looked back on it, I just did like instinctively what I would do. I'm a mom i just was protective it was It was very hard to take the the incident the what happened to us and process it because it was just a very psychologically terrifying thing, but it ended and I didn't get hurt and no one around me was hurt that I knew at the time. I mean, I ended up knowing a lot mm. of police officers who went through so much and I, I feel for them tremendously. Uh, and that that's a little part of it. Like, I'm like, well, I survived and I'm okay, but, There were all these officers who were trying to protect me who went through hours of battle with these people. I mean, they were just hours of medieval battle with spears and crutches and flags, American flags that they were trying to beat the police with.
1: Weaponizing,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and so I, it was like a little weird in that I couldn't figure out how to process it so much. And I also, um, I didn't have a lot of time to process it because immediately after that we went into impeachment, and I was, you know, involved in the impeachment. So I really didn't end up processing any of it probably until March or so. And um, it seems really far away that it happened a really long time ago in my mind, but we're, you know, it's the anniversary. It's amazing that it's been in this year. Like I look back, it's it's actually been this year that it happened. We've um, lived
1: a lot of life in a short amount of time. We sure what did. support have you gotten to help you with the trauma of that day?
0: Well, the good thing is the House of Representatives, they really, they knew... That a lot of people were traumatized. I mean, a lot of staff were traumatized as well. As, well, the police officers, number one, staff, Absolutely. and then members who were in the who were on the floor were completely traumatized too. And, and they did a lot of support services for all of us. And I, you know, got counseling and spiritual help as well. I had a rabbi who was looking out for me. I always say, whenever, when I was at my lowest points, my rabbi friend would call me and say, what are you doing? You need to deal with this. So it was very nice. So I feel like, um, I came through it this summer. Like I came Mm -hmm. out, it was very, very heavy for a very long time. And then I I had a really good summer and things started getting a little bit back to normal. I'm sure on the anniversary, I'm going to relive a lot of it again and it's going to be really painful, but I'm going to look at the positive sides of what happened and the improvements so that the things that are happening so that this can never happen again. And that's, what's really important to me that Two things, that this never happened again and that the people who did this are held accountable, that we cannot whitewash this. We cannot. And, and there's a on Capitol Hill now, there's a feeling of denial on this, on the side of the Republicans. I mean, not all, not all, I'm not, but there's a good chunk of people who are still saying it wasn't that bad. And, um, I just really want to make sure that we don't do that, that we, that more stories even come out. There's so many people who have incredible stories from that day and that, that, that we shine a light on what happened that day so that this can never happen again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm curious if, if you could go back in time, you know, go back to yourself on that day, January 6th, you know, the youth standing by the door, ready to fight and protect yourself and your, your boss's family. What would you say to yourself?
0: I would just say you're, you know, you're stronger than, you know, you know, you have it in you, you can do this they won't they won't define you you know that I would be hoping to give myself the strength to get through it I mean I that time when I actually was holding the object to to the door I was in my mind I was trying to figure out what to do when they came in. Because there's no doubt in my mind they were coming in because, I mean, they were right outside the door. It was very loud. One thing that your listeners, and you know this, but your listeners may not know, is that everything is marble right around Mm -hmm. there. So the sounds reverberate unbelievably. Oh, yeah. Like, so I, I, reality is I probably was hearing a lot more before they even got close. And if I remember anything as terrifying as that day, it was the sounds because everything was amplified. So we really could hear them trying to get in the house floor because they were, were right by the entrance that they were trying to bang down. Um, in the back of the house and, you know, the jangling of our doorknob and everything just reverberated. And it's the sounds that I will never forget. I think what we all probably felt from those, the sounds, the, the loudness, the intensity of the, of the noise from that day, I will never forget.
1: And And I suspect in the future... And you probably maybe have already experienced it if noises it like, might still startle you might still have that strong kind of trauma response because our bodies hold that. And I, I, I picture I have this picture on, you know, the anniversary coming up of uh, January 6 2022 of a place where everyone can come and really remember together. There's something so powerful When there's a a traumatic experience that's shared by many to come together and to give witness, that'll be healing. It might, it'll be painful, but it'll be cathartic and really an important part in all of your healing journey. So I hope, I hope I know how busy things are right now. I hope that there's time for you all to, to be able to remember and witness together as the anniversary comes up. I'm curious, what do you want people to know about that day that they're not seeing on the news?
0: it was a lot of people like me that it's not, Mm -hmm. it wasn't just the members of Congress. It was a lot of people like me. It was a lot of people that work in the services of the house. There Mm -hmm. are janitors, our food service individuals, a lot of support staff and everyone it, it, it affected everyone and it also affected, so I, I was in the Capitol, I was a few feet from the floor, I was in the thick of it, but I also had a lot of colleagues who were just right across the street in their office buildings and they were traumatized because their bosses were over here, their friends are over here, they don't know what's going on. And even we were in a, a lot of remote work, too, because of COVID. So there were a lot of staff that were working from home, that were working remotely. Mm-hmm. They have like survivor's guilt, kind of, like they, that mm-hmm. they weren't there that day. And so and I even have a friend who retired a couple years ago, and this has just deeply affected her because she's like, this is, it, it, it's a violation, it was like a yes. real violation of your of your home your heart this is what we do this is what we yes. devoted our life to and they violated it and i think everyone who works on capitol hill feels that way
1: you know, it's interesting. I, I watched a documentary a few weeks ago, HBO Plus documentary, Four Hours on January 6th. Have you seen it? I don't think I've seen that one. I don't I'm I'm not sure if how you'd how your nervous system would feel about it, but there was some interesting footage I hadn't seen. And one thing that stood out to me in light of what you just said about that violation, and, and that's, I think, that's a big part of what was affecting me as a former staffer watching this. Yeah, it was a violation and it's hard to put to words, but then I heard people chanting, this is our house. This is our house. What does that bring up in you when you heard that chanting and heard people saying, "This is our house. Take back our house"?
0: Yeah, I mean that just—it's revolting to me because it's—it's—it's mm. it's, it's the people's house, but not the insurrectionist house. You know, that's—that's uh, that's the difference. It, it is the people's house, but they were there to—I I mean, in my heart, I think they were there to overthrow the government and who'd ever think that this could happen in the united states and it wasn't their house and that's why it was it was really important that day that they go back in and certify the electors yes. and there was a moment when we were all together like they they put us in this I'm just going to call it the secure location, but there was a, there were hundreds of mm-hmm. us in there that had been over in the Capitol, and um, you know Speaker Pelosi came in the room and she said, "It doesn't matter how late we have to, we will go back in tonight," and the place erupted in applause, and then Liz Cheney came out because at that point she was the chair of their caucus. And it was very bipartisan and this feeling like we can't let these people win and we're going to make sure that we certify these electors. So that part felt good. I Thank you for sharing
1: this. And, and I want to talk more about what's happening right now with the committee investing that day. But first, you know, I, I had you on. Because I wanted your your you're sharing what happened that day, but there's so much more to you than January 6th, and I want to share a little bit of that. You're a veteran staffer of I read 25 years, and you've seen a lot. Um, I'd love for you to share what inspired your decision to start working in politics.
0: I I was born and raised in Philadelphia. And when I was there, we, when I was in my formative years, we had a really, really kooky mayor, Frank Rizzo. I think people (laughs) remember Mayor Frank Rizzo. And just from a really early time, I loved to read the newspaper. Like that was just my thing. I loved to read. I liked, I really wanted to know what was going on. And I loved politics. And uh, when I was at University of Maryland, had an internship in the Maryland General Assembly. And um, that's an assembly that actually follows an order where every bill that gets introduced has a hearing and the public can, anyone in the public can testify at the hearing. And And I just fell in love with the process. And I knew I, I really, I have to work on Capitol Hill. And that was my, what got me there. And then throughout my career, I have wanted to do different things, like I wanted to try campaigns, and um, and I did try campaigns. And I, I've been really, really fortunate in life and with my career. I've I've pretty much have loved everything that I've done, and not everyone gets that in life. And um, I really, you know, it's not for everyone <laughs> what I do. It's it can be really intense. But I have loved campaigns. I've loved working on Capitol Hill. I worked at the Democratic National Committee, presidential campaigns, congressional campaigns. And it's been, I just feel, I really do feel so fortunate to be a person who loves what they do and has always felt that way.
1: That's a gift.
0: Yeah, it That's is. You
1: have to have that meaningful work. Many people they burn out, or they get cynical, or they just kind of they take the high paying corporate job, which isn't bad. But it, it's, it's a stepping stone to something else. Is is this what you is this what you thought you'd be doing with your life?
0: Yeah, in some ways. I mean, growing up in Philadelphia, one thing I just knew, I knew I wasn't going to stay there in some respects because I, it, you know, if you could be a lawyer or go into banking or insurance, and that just wasn't for me. I knew that. So once I got like the political bug, I just thought that's what I'm going to do. And I've just, I've moved around a lot. I mean, that's the nature of This kind of work is that you move around a lot, but that's worked for me as it fits in with my personality. So I've enjoyed it uh, tremendously. And and what keeps me going now, because I'm really in reality, I'm sort of at the let's just say I'm at the autumn of my career (laughs) where I think more about retiring than my next step, to be honest. (laughs) <laughs> yes but i do feel a great responsibility now mm. to nurture young people i really do like that's i, I i've i've thought through and i realize like you know and i have my own i have two daughters one's 21 and one's 19 and they're not wow. interested in politics at all they're both creative girls huh. but the young people on capitol hill i really want to try to help them find their way and and love what they do also. And they're, you know, it's very trite, but they're the future and they're the ones who are going to really make a difference. So my goal now as I sort of, you know, think about the end of my career is to make sure that, you know, there's people there, young people there who keep the flame lit and, and do the good work. Because you're right, you can really burn out in these jobs. And you can get really cynical, too. But I think if you have an environment, if you create an environment and give people opportunities, they won't be as cynical. It's very easy in politics to become cynical. I mean, we see these things and, you know, you could easily (laughs) become cynical. And I I have. I mean, I don't want to portray myself as someone who has never, you know, I, I've, I've gone through periods of like, you know, I've seen a lot of things, some that I haven't liked a lot, but on the whole, I mean, most of the people who are in this work are in it for the right reasons. And I really do believe that. I do too. Yeah. They're really in it for the right reasons. I mean, with politicians, there's definitely ego going on there. But Just a little,
1: yeah. <laughs> you but, need it though. I think it's protective, honestly. I mean, it's brutal. Yeah, that's what out there.
0: Yeah, it is. And they, right, they have to really put themselves out there. So there's ego, but I do think most that enter it, enter it because they want to do good things for people.
1: So I'm listening to you even acknowledge kind of. You're, you're dancing with cynicism, but I'm not getting that from you at all right now, that you genuinely still care. You believe that, this is what I'm sensing, that what you're doing is making a difference, that there's still hope for change. Am, am I
0: reading this right? I, I think you're reading it right, but I'm also realistic. I mean, I uh, uh, I was on the Hill, I mean, my first Hill job was in 1989, and there oh. was, yeah, yeah. And there yeah, there was a sense of campus and it didn't matter if you were Democrats or Republicans, you, there was a community and we were all in it together and it's It's nothing like that now. And, you know, know, I think I could really get caught up. I think we all could get really caught up in this idea that we can't get anything done, but you, I mean, you, I wouldn't be able to work on the hill if I really believe that nothing can happen.
1: I also think in DC there is, there's a little bit of this like group think and it's infectious and to really not be idealistic without your feet on the ground. Like you said, you're a realist to kind of just look at it and say, yeah, things are tenuous. We've got work to do. And so sometimes I think when they like to forecast, people can check out and, and tap out and, Yeah. So I guess I want to just even on that note that even on success, success in D.C., at least in my experiences, has a different flavor than it does in other jobs. It's not always like the salary or the title, maybe, but it's more in who you know and the access to power or wins around legislation or elections. And I'm curious, I'd love for you to share how has your definition of success changed over the years of
0: you working in D.C.? Well, it's really hard to quantify success in politics because, (laughs) you know, it's very true. Yeah, it means... So, it's so different for different people. Some people, like success would mean passing a bill or an amendment, you know, when you get into Congress. Others, like you said, it's winning campaigns. I've never thought that much about I, I love winning. Don't get me wrong, I really love winning, but I'm a progressive Democrat. We generally lose more than we win. so you come to terms with that. And I just laugh like, yep, I usually support the losing candidate. But I think success, sometimes longevity is just success. Being able to um, stick around and continue to do the work. For me, you know, I feel good about it. When I leave, I want to leave and feel good about my career and what I've done. And for me, a lot of it is about trying to make things better for people. And and I think that's what drives certainly what drives Jamie Raskin uh, is is that and you know his he's a very positive person he finds hope in everything and as you can imagine he does after what he lost his son and then did the whole impeachment so he's infectious his positivity is infectious and I've found that that's. The only way you'll survive is you have to be positive. Find the good in there, in in well, even it, the bad.
1: But let me let me pl- pick on this word positivity because for me, I feel like it's even deeper. I feel like it's courage. I feel like it's hope. I feel like it's grounded values that you stay focused. It's it's long, and it's long game. Look, it's not expedient. So uh, tell me if that lands with but, you. Yeah, I'm, I mean,
0: it can't be expediency in in um politics. It's just like that's I sometimes I have to talk to my my friends through my wife, my friends through this process. Like the Senate it, it, the founders wanted it to be a deliberative body. Stop.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so
0: you know nothing happens quickly on either side of the house. And like, we just saw the sausage making of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I mean, it was really horribly ugly. And, you know, it's it's almost magical that it passed. <laughs> and there was a lot, as you can imagine, cause Rebecca, you know, the atmosphere, what was going on it was just torturous. <laughs> and, you know, I, everyone, on the hill, no one could figure anything out. And it was just torturous. And the fact that it passed again, it was really almost magical. And then we're gonna probably experience that again with Build Back Better. And my hope is that these things are transformative for people and that they'll see that and hopefully vote that way in next election, I don't think that we have figured out why some people vote against their best interests. And mm. why um, do
1: you think that happens?
0: I think that more people are, I do think that people in DC don't have a good grasp of what's really going on out in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are a bubble. And mm-hmm. I, I think that you know, you would think people would would vote for their economic interests, but in a lot of ways, the cultural things that bother people, that's going to be the driver. So there's the one issue, people. But then I Mm -hmm. think also there's a little bit, I do think we're missing out on the understanding, the cultural issues of what's going on out there. And I mean, you can see it. I I just have a lot of concerns about we appear to not be addressing the cultural issues of certain communities. And we were trying to deal with a lot of the economic issues because we need to, because we're in and an economic situation due to the pandemic. So, and we've ignored infrastructure for so many years that we were in a kind of a desperate situation. So we need to address these issues, but we're also not understanding some of the underlying psychology of people and their need for freedom and you know you see it right now with these Board of Education meetings and parental yes. rights and it's just tough and I think we just have to really take a good look at, at at all of it at we have to take a good look at what people are thinking and what's important to them and we're going we are going to fix a lot of that economic, problems or we're going to try. I mean, these bills address some of it and address a lot of it. And it's going to pull people out of poverty and it's going to help a lot of people. It's going to create jobs, but we also need to find out kind of what motivates them to vote for a, a, a person and a party.
1: It, it's the messaging. It's definitely in the messaging of that too. And in connection to that. Yeah, you're right about the DC bubble. I remember when I moved out there, I was interning at the the League of Municipal- Municipalities in Iowa and they said, "Don't get swamp fever." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? We're going to change the world." And like, a couple years I'm like, "I know what he's talking yeah, about." Yeah, you lose you catch touch. that
0: bubble. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. I I do want to shift a little bit about something you wrote a couple years ago. I was so moved. You wrote an op-ed in June of 2019 for the Washington Blade about the importance, and I just love this, of expressing all parts of our identity openly and without fear. That just really caused me to pause. And this particular excerpt was so powerful. You wrote, I'm an LGBTQ American. I'm also Jewish American. I don't agree with the policies of the current Israeli government, just like I don't agree with the policies of the current American government, which the time then President Trump was still in power but my Jewish faith and my LGBTQ identity are essential parts of who I am as a human being. And this is just powerful. You said to discriminate against one part of my identity is to discriminate against all of me. Now this was in response to an LGBT gathering that was wanting to prohibit the wearing of the star of David and carrying the flag of Israel. Tell me a little bit about who or what has helped you on your journey to owning all parts of your story and your identity?
0: Well, a little bit of, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm gay, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, i Jewish. They're all, those are like really important things to me. And I've tried to stay grounded in that one thing, um, you know, when I was really young, I... I was married to a man and that had a lot. I saw the difference between how you are treated when you're in a heterosexual relationship versus when you're in a same-sex relationship. And I also realized because I came out in the 90s, so early 90s, and it, it was it was a lot easier than a lot of people, but it was still kind of, you know, not as easy as it is today, we'll just say it was just very profound for me because it it changed my life dramatically, not only in terms of happiness, but also that I really no longer cared what people thought of me because I knew everyone was talking about me. Like, and that's the thing. Like I knew people that I grew up with who learned this, you know, it was the nineties. I knew everyone was talking about me because I thought gosh, if I knew somebody like that and that happened, I'd probably be talking about it as well. And from that point on, I never really, it it just, I was like, this is who I am and they're going to talk about me and I can't help anything like that. But I also felt like when we go back to this issue of being all these different things and it is really painful if one part of you is, discriminated against you know and for a long time it was the LGBT part of me and it's definitely changed so much for the better you know I still live in a little bubble here in right outside of DC so I'm sure if I lived in the heartland maybe it'd be a little different um, but also as a Jewish person I grew up in a very Jewish area. I didn't know. I like to say growing up in Philadelphia, I literally thought everyone was either Jewish or Catholic. Um, <laughs> and and you you do have to, it does hurt when one part of you, someone doesn't like one part of you. Well, how do you dissect that? how do you dissect that you are you can you compartmentalize i can't in that way when one part of you gets picked at it you can't anything but feel that they're coming you know it's all about you and it's sad
1: it's dehumanizing too what has been the biggest challenge navigating discrimination and bigotry on Capitol Hill?
0: Well, I, it, we really like, I, my first job on the Hill was in 1989. It was a completely different place. There weren't that many women in leadership roles. I was very young, so I didn't expect to be in a leadership role, but we've really come a long way. And, I can't say that I've been discriminated against for Hmm. being gay, for being Jewish or being a woman in the last 10 to 15 years in politics, like the campaign world. And it's, it's a man's world. It's, it's been that way for a long time. And, and that, that, that probably was the hardest on me. So now when i look up and i see all these really powerful women that are their staff directors on all the major committees they're making all these decisions it just i just it brings joy to me to see so many women in charge because it just wasn't like that when i first got there and it was hard navigating You know, it really was like I had a me too moment on when I was young on the hill and and almost every single person I knew had that. Right. At least one. Yeah. Usually. Mine didn't come from a member. It was from another staff person, but Mm -hmm. like it's still we all had it. And um, it's it's it really has come so far. It's 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 just great to see that. Because it was hard to see in the beginning, yeah.
1: You've given me so much hope. I do want to wrap up with bringing, bringing things full circle back to where we started in our conversation. Right now in Congress, your office is working on a lot of pressing legislative issues. But for me, most importantly, he's serving on the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So given the immense pressure to rewrite what happened on that day in January 6th, to me, and I know to many, the work on this committee feels deeply connected to preserving democracy. I'd love for you to be just so clear, what is at stake right now with this investigation, and why should we all be paying more attention to what is happening with this investigation?
0: Well, it's really crucial that... We make sure that, like I said earlier, that we that this never happens again. So, I think the committee is really trying to dissect all the components of what happened so that it will never happen again. And I think there is a great desire to hold people accountable for this, because, like you said, this is our democracy. There's never been an attack on the Capitol prior to, I guess there was attacks on the Capitol prior to the civil war, but like this was an attack on the Capitol. It's it's to even say that a modern attack on the Capitol is mind boggling and we can't forget it. We cannot forget what happened and we cannot let it happen again. So I think the committee is dissecting everything and really wants to get to pull all the pieces together together and find out who did what, so you can prevent it. And there's they're getting a lot of cooperation. I mean, we, a lot of what's reported in the news are the people who are not cooperating, but there's been a lot of cooperation. And I think the committee is, it's not a legislative committee, but it'll make some recommendations like the 9-11 committee. Some of the committee, some of the things that I think they'll recommend have to do with, you know, safety and securing the capital and things like that. But also, I mean, I think there's a great desire to make sure that within the institution and outside of the institution that we can't just allow... I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, but we we just can't allow people who want to tear down our democracy to even go as far as they have. But I think there's a sense that it was much more complex than what meets the eye.
1: Yeah, to bring, to bring that to light, and you mentioned to make sure this never happens again, and you also said, and to have accountability.
0: I think that's and key. Just what. The Tell me more. Accountability to make sure that the people who planned it, who cooperated with it at all levels are held accountable. There were planners, there were funders, there were potentially members of Congress who helped. Everyone needs to be held accountable. I think we will look back on that day in awe of what happened. And we will always say it could have been much worse. Like I, that's in my heart, like, wow, this could have been really bad. And, and it ended up being terrible, but more people could have died and they didn't, but we can never get this close and we can't allow leaders to get into a position like it, it's scary. Like, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole, of, but we can't allow leaders to get into place who could either do these things or or look the other way and i think that's a lot of what's happening now on capitol hill on the other side the republicans they don't want to admit that this happened and they want to look the other way they don't want to take it seriously they hide behind this by this idea that it was that this commission is is partisan it is not it is clearly bipartisan Um, We could have even had a 9-11 style commission. That's actually what Pelosi wanted. And um, the Republicans would not take yes for an answer. We gave them every single thing they wanted. And from that day, I think everyone knew that when they said they're not going to do this, that they don't want to know. They really don't want to know the truth because the truth is ugly for them you know, what's happened to their party, it's ugly. And they don't want to know. They just want to have people vote for them. And they'll do anything.
1: It's scary to tell the truth, because accountability is always inevitable. And here, accountability would mean losing power. Yeah,
0: exactly. The stakes
1: are high for power.
0: The stakes are really high for power.
1: What message do you have for those who are who would say they're not political? I've got a lot of those people, yeah, so do, so do I, so do I, and they've tapped out of the process because they don't feel like it matters to them. What message? Do you have for them?
0: Well, I want to say that you have to have hope and that you shouldn't just disappear really, because that is not going to help anything. Just mm. not, you know, disappearing into your own life and your own things are not going to make things better. So really, if you want to make big things better, you have to stay involved. You have to pay attention it's going to get you down. It will get you down at times, but you have to recognize that. And what I try to tell people is there are definitely times that it's going to feel terrible and you will get down, but it will get better. And you'll have to pick yourself up and unless you disappear, right? And and then maybe it won't get better for you, but just paying attention, not getting so into it that it destroys your life. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a problem for a lot of people. They, they've Absolutely. said they, they don't want to watch TV anymore because it just gets them. I think learning how to look at it objectively and taking realities check on yourself, but staying involved, writing letters calling members of Congress, getting involved in grassroots organizations. I highly recommend people getting involved in grassroots organizations. And voting. Right, and And voting. voting. The main thing, I would hope that people won't give up on voting because that's where it all makes a difference. And not just for president. Like, you can't just come every four years. I'm very concerned about what's happening on these school boards because – that now people like rational people aren't sure they want to run because of everything that's going on on, in these school boards. So paying attention at all levels and voting and going to your candidate forums, like we're heading next year is going to be interesting. You know, it's an election year. Try to go to some of them, ask questions. It's always, to me, it's very fascinating. You know, you can support interesting people and who are trying to do good in the world. And, Don't disappear. That's all I would say. Please don't disappear. Make sure you vote and try to stay involved.
1: Thank you for that word, Julie. Thank you so much for this time for, for sharing your story from January 6th, but sharing your broader story and your vision. You are a rare, a rare one out of DC with your level of hope. Um, grounded in realism, I kind of call it. There's a scrappy hope that you. It's grounded. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you fight the cynicism, and it's refreshing. So, thank you for sharing your story. I am so glad that January 6th did not get worse for you or the congressman. you so much, family. And I, I just am so glad that people get to hear a snippet of a story of one of the many big hearts that are working day in and day out to truly make this country better and how you're leading yourself. We can all take a page from to hold on to what really, what really matters and to stay engaged with meaningful work. So thank you for your time and thank you for your
0: service. I'm so grateful. My pleasure, Rebecca. It's, it's been great speaking with you. Really enjoyed it.
1: If you are alive in 2022 and in the United States, you have experienced vicarious trauma in the last couple of years at minimum. This makes remembering deeply challenging. There have been many, too many moments we have all watched together activating so much trauma and collective grief. The horrific milestones of COVID and COVID-related deaths, hate speech, successful attacks on our democracy, relationship ending debates about masks and vaccines, attacks on protesters and waking up to being complacent and complicit to systemic racism. There's also been so much good too. I don't want to minimize that, but I want to acknowledge, it's been a lot. And if you're a helping or service professional, no doubt you have not escaped the last couple of years unscathed. So I'm curious for you, What fears and concerns come up around remembering, especially collective traumas and losses? How do you want to remember and reflect on the January 6th insurrection and all that's happened since that day? And how can you support your community and your family remembering something that is so polarizing and charged without defaulting to appeasing or staying quote neutral? I'm grateful for Julie sharing her story I was surprised by how much it helped me heal my own vicarious trauma from that day. She modeled the power of sharing her story as a means to move through trauma, the power of finding connection, and the permission to allow the losses and grief to be witnessed. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Leading is hard, like really hard. (laughs) Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries, and not staying silent when that feels like the easiest or best thing to do. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. You don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't wanna lose focus, when you wanna navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you wanna make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Unburdened Leader. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be honored if you left it a review or rating and shared it with someone who you also think would benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, and sign up for free Unburdened Leader resources and my weekly Unburdened Leader email and find ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.